Not a lot has changed since Genesis chapter 3. This is still what happens. This is still who we are. Uh, We are still sinful, and God is still holy. The sin that we see in Adam and Eve is the sin that we see in ourselves, and the goodness, the perfections, the, the holiness of God that we see in Genesis 3 that is still true today. And so here in Genesis 3, and specifically what I'd like to work through today, uh, verses 8 through 13 of the portion that was just read to you, um, what we have here are relational patterns established between God and man. So you're going to see, after the sin of Adam and Eve, you're going to see how God interacts with man and how man interacts with God. And these are relational patterns between God and man that are established here in Genesis 3, but are still true today. So this is still what man does. This is still who man is, and this is still what man does. And this is still who God is, and this is still what God does. Namely, man sins, hides, blames abdicates responsibility and and nothing has changed this is still true today for for you and for me man sins and we hide and we blame and we abdicate responsibility but as well what god does here is is still what god does today god loves god cares god calls god pursues Man. In that regard, in terms of these relational patterns here, nothing, nothing has changed. So, if you are able today to, maybe you already have, but if you are able today to accept the teaching that we have here in Genesis 3, it is going to be very illuminating for, for your own life. My prayer leading up to the sermon, my prayer is that we would all identify with Adam and Eve. That we would not, we would not just see Adam and Eve as this sort of beta version of, of human beings that, that was all wrong and messed up then, but we're further down and higher up the evolutionary ladder, and so we're not we're not those imbeciles anymore. We can do that. We can, we can read about these, these falls, the fall, and other falls of, of people in the Bible, and we can subtly or just outright kind of separate ourselves from them and say, oh, well, we're, we're not them. And we say things about them, and even about others that we see sinning today, we say things to ourselves like, I would never do that. Right now, if you're a good Christian, you just don't say it out loud. But that's really the only difference. We, we think those kinds of things. We see people fall, including Adam and Eve. We see people fall. We, we think to ourselves in our sinfulness that I, I can't, we say things like, I can't believe they did that. And we think things like, I would, I would never do that. So my prayer is that we would identify with Adam and Eve and their sinning and they're hiding and they're blaming and they're abdicating responsibility we would identify with that and see that in our own hearts and then that we would find hope that we would find hope when we see how god deals with them and remember that this is still who god is and this is still how god deals with his people namely his his mercifully patient pursuit of Adam and Eve. He does not bring an end to Adam and Eve. We see here on display for the first time, and then the rest of your Bible is just over and over and above and beyond. We see God's mercifully patient pursuit of His people rather than a swift ultimate punishment. We see his patient pursuit. A quick summary of what we've studied up until this point. The man and woman, husband and wife, 
We're living the good life in the good garden with a good God. And darkness, we read this last week, creeps into the garden, undermines the man's leadership, and tempts the woman to become like him. Satan tempts the woman, tempts Adam and Eve to become really like him. Sinful, uh, treacherous, and, and dead. Satan undermines, Adam abdicates, Eve usurps. So they all do this willingly, and they actually work together. They all complement one another very well. Satan, the man, and the woman. They've got this wonderful complementary relationship. Satan comes in and, and undermines God and undermines Adam and goes to his wife. Adam abdicates his responsibility to protect his wife and Eve willingly usurps the authority of her husband and everything goes bad. But they're all doing this willingly. It's a conspiracy, if you will, to disobey God and, and rebel, rebel against him. So Satan, to Adam and Eve, he positions himself against God, claiming that God is both unfair and unjudgmental. God is not fair. He's, he's, he's withholding things from you. Your life could be so much better. He, he's not letting you experience all that you could experience. He's crushing you. God is not a fair God. He's not really loving. His word can't be trusted. And he's not judgmental. In other words, if you do disobey Him, I mean, God is a good God and He's going to overlook your, your disobedience. He says exactly what they, what they need to hear. And then Eve and Adam believe Satan. They believe Satan. They unbelieve God. And so sin, going astray from God and from His Word, comes into the world. The eyes of both of them were then opened. What were their eyes opened to? Their eyes were opened to the darkness that had made its way into their heart. The treason they committed against a God who had been nothing but good to them. The treason, the selfishness, the unbelief, the cowardice, the evil, and the sin. They, like we then, felt ashamed of what they had done and who they had become. And they covered themselves in an effort to hide from one another. And next, in our text today, albeit unsuccessfully, they hide from God. Hide from one another. Hide from God. We all are still doing this. We're hiding from one another. We're hiding from God. So let's pray again. Let's get started. Great Father in heaven, thank you for giving us a word to read. Thank you for giving us truth to believe. Thank you for revealing so much of yourself to us. Thank you for revealing who, who we are, God, this bad news of who we are. God, help us to believe this bad news. God, we... We want to resist it. And we don't want, Lord, to, to meditate on our sinfulness. God, I, I do not want to think about what is wrong with me or in me. I want to hide from that truth, God. You know my heart. I want to make excuses for this truth. I want to blame others for this truth. But, but Lord, however, however far... Your truth goes in regards to our sinfulness. Help us to own it today. And help us to accept it. And help us to, to believe what our hearts would have us not believe. Our culture would have us not believe. Society would have us not believe. Popular opinion, not believe. But help us, if it's true, God, help us to believe it. And then, God, we thank you that if and when we believe this bad news, that you do not withhold good news from us. And we pray that as quick as we accept this bad news, that you would, you would bring in with thunder your good news, God. That while there is no hope 
in and of ourselves. There is infinite hope in you. So we can go there, God. We can admit our folly and our sin and our rebellion and our brokenness. We can admit this because there is a truth that covers this, that you are merciful and that you are gracious and you have made a way for salvation, redemption, reconciliation to you, our good Father. So God, help us to own it today. Help us to identify with our first parents and help us to find great hope in how you dealt with them. For that is the way you deal with us. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So if you haven't already, please open your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And we'll do this the usual way. We'll go one verse at a time and see the initial reaction here. How Adam and Eve react to their sin and and. And God coming to visit with them. And then the dialogue, this fascinating dialogue between Adam and Eve and God in verses 9 through 13. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here this uh, sweet communion with God is broken. There has been sweet communion between the man and the woman and God up until this point. Their relationship has been solid. It has been Good. It has been great. And there has been peace and harmony. But we see here now that that is, that is broken. And it's important for us to recognize that nothing has changed in God. But something has changed in the man and the, and the woman. Right? When that's the first question that we want to we ask. When there's a, a, a break in a relationship or, or when communion is broken in a relationship and the relationship changes, of course, we want to know who's, who's at fault. We're quick to know that. We want to know who's going to take responsibility. We want to know what changed. What happened? When we got married, we were so happy and everything was wonderful. You know, why isn't it that way anymore? We reflect on these things, you know. Did he change? Did, did she change? So it's important as we read the story up until this point that nothing has changed in God, but something has changed in the man and the woman. Okay, that's where the change has occurred. And then see how God comes into the garden. This is, this is important to take note of. What does the first half of verse 8 say? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden In the cool of the day. In other words, God does not stomp, huffing and puffing, into the garden in the middle of the night. You see, it says the opposite of all of that. So there's nothing about God and about how He approaches them that should cause them to hide. There's nothing that He's doing that is, you know, scary or frightening. Okay, he doesn't show up. I mean, what is it? He comes in the cool of the day. What is that telling? The author is making a point to say that there was nothing threatening about this. In the cool of the day. In other words, the most peaceful time of the day. Right? I compare that to that, that sweet spot in the day in Sacramento. Right? Which in the springtime and the summer is right about that four o'clock. Five o'clock, sort of before the sun goes down and the, the weather cools. And there's just some people talk about this delta breeze. I don't know what that is. I think it's made up. But there's this breeze and we just savor it. And it's wonderful and it's cool and we love it. It's peaceful. We're usually home from work. Maybe we're with family about to eat. Okay, that's, that's the time. It, it's not God banging on the door in the middle of the night. I mean, that would rattle you, Right? That would rattle Adam and Eve. This is just happening in the cool of the day. How does he come into the garden? I mean, is he, is he stomping into the garden? 
Is he just crashing around, knocking things over? You know, Adam, you know, what the? He doesn't come in angry, right? He's just walking. And he's not, he's not, he's not even yelling. Or, they just hear the sound of him walking in the garden. So there's no, nothing has changed in God. There's no reason for Adam and Eve to be alarmed. And yet we see this reaction from them. Okay, he walks in in the cool of the day. And, and what, is their, what is their reaction? God has not changed. God is still good. God is still holy. But they're bad now. And they know it. They know God has been nothing but good to them and they've disobeyed him. They see that in their heart. That they've abused his love, they've abused his grace, that they've betrayed him, that they've committed treason. So what is the sinful reaction here to a holy God? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They, they try to hide from God. Psalm 139, 7 through 12 answers this question. Can we hide from God? This is what David says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall come over me and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Did you hear that last sentence? About God, even the darkness is not dark to you. So nothing is hidden from God. And yet Adam and Eve just impulsively, because God is good and God is holy and they are no longer good and they are no longer holy, just instinctively they run and hide from God. I mean, this is foolish, right? This is foolish. What is it? It says they hide behind trees. Really? This is God has come looking for them. And so they just find the biggest tree in the garden and cower behind the tree. This is their sinful reaction to a holy God. And now and now we have this this conversation. This conversation between between Man and God. And just, just see, see this, right? See the sin in the man and the woman. And see the patience in God. I mean, just pay attention to how the man and the woman talk to God and how God talks to them. And I think it becomes clear. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Well, God's the first one who talks. God is the first one. God is the one who actually takes responsibility here. And God is the one who initiates the conversation. Man is hiding. And so God calls out to him. He doesn't grab him by the back of his neck and rip him out from behind the tree. He calls out to him and he says, where are you? He doesn't say, you know, come out with your hands up. You might expect that God would react that way. He calls out to him and says, where are you? Now, you understand this is a rhetorical question. God does this all the time. He asks questions he knows the answer to. You're not to hear that and think, wow, Adam and Eve must be awesome at hide and seek. <laughs> You're not to think, well, they, they actually found like this magical tree where they could hide in and he can't, he can't see them. God is not wandering around frustrated in the garden because he can't find Adam and Eve. And he finally gives up and says, where, where are you? This is what God is doing. God is drawing Adam out of his hiding rather than driving him out of his hiding. Rather than drive Adam out of hiding. 
right? Rather than drag him out. God's wooing him out. God's calling out to him. God is drawing him out. God does this all over the place in the Bible. You remember uh, Saul before he was Paul. And he's on the road to Damascus. And he's heading to lock up and, and oversee the death most likely of more Christians. And, and God meets him on the road to Damascus. And he begins this dialogue with Paul. And what is the first thing he does? He asks him a question. What is God doing? He's, he's drawing things out. He's drawing things out of him. He's not just telling him, though God could do that, to see how God interacts with him. God rather is, is drawing things out so that the truth comes from, in this case, Adam's mouth, rather than him hearing it from God. Isn't there something different when you hear the truth coming out of your own mouth, then when you hear it from someone else, isn't there something different between you confessing and someone accusing? Isn't there an acceptance that has to happen in your heart before you will willingly say that something is so? So God can come and He can just say, Adam, you know, I see you. Get out. But God doesn't do this. He comes and he asks him, where are you? In the next chapter, chapter 4, you're going to see God do this with Cain after he kills his brother Abel. Again, God doesn't react the way you would think. There is this mercifully patient pursuit of him. And three different times, God asks him questions. Where are you? What have you done? Tell me. Adam responds back. And he said, verse 10, in response to God saying, where are you? Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here Adam says that he's afraid. But again, is there anything that God has done to cause him to be fearful at this point? Nothing, nothing. God has never even judged Adam and Eve. There has been no confrontation. God has not raised his voice. He has not disciplined them. He has not grown angry. This is not. When Adam is fearful and afraid, this is, this is what we mean. Adam is not like a dog who is cowering in the corner upon his owner's return because he knows that he has done something wrong and he's about to get it again from his owner. That's not what's happening here. This isn't the dog that got into the cupboard and last time the dog got into the cupboard, the dad came home and just lost it with the dog. And so now there's this <laughs> defense mechanism that comes up and the dog is fearful and cowering in the corner because here we go again. But that hasn't happened, right? As we've read this story, God has not done anything like that. Here's what's happening. Rather, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, feel the guilt of their sin. They feel the guilt of their sin. And the closer they get to the good God that they have sinned against, the more painful their guilt becomes. This is why we hide. So in other words, they, they know. They know that they have sinned against God. They know that God has been nothing but good to them. And they've abused His love. And they've disobeyed Him. And they've rebelled against him. And there, there is an emotion that God has built in that we feel when we do that. You've all felt it. And it's guilt. Guilt is when you, you do something that you shouldn't do. And you feel terrible about it. And, and typically, typically, the more innocent the person is you sinned against, the guiltier you feel. The more 
painful that emotion is. So that's why one of our tactics, right, when we've sinned against somebody is to make them look bad or to try to bring them into our own sin, right? Husbands and wives do this all the time when they fight and argue. The husband, has, he knows that he has sinned against the wife. He knows he has spoken to her in a way that he should not speak to her. And he's feeling the guilt. And now he thinks, if I can just push her buttons and get her to sin now, that pain won't be as much. But we all do this. I'll feel better if I can drag her in. And so if we sin against people or do things against people that we see as being awful or terrible or sinful, it doesn't hurt as badly as when we sin against someone who has done nothing wrong to us. Like, let's say, the sin against a child. That's why we're so offended by sin against children. So when we hear of great sins against children, it stirs in all of us anger. Why? Because of the innocence of the one sinned against. So here's what you need to grasp, that God is more innocent than the most innocent child. God is light, John 1 tells us in 1 John 1, and in him there is no darkness at all. So any any rebellion against God and, and sin against God and disobedience of God is, is, is infinitely sinful. You, just, you can't even use language to describe how sinful it is because the innocence of the one that is being sinned against, God, is, is unfathomable. Right? So, our tactic is to run and hide. Because if Adam is, is away from God... He still feels his guilt, right? But you know how this goes. But if I'm away from him and I'm not seeing him, and this is what we do. We get busy and we distract ourselves and we do all these things. And we avoid that person and we stay away from them because when we're with them, it hurts. It's painful. It's painful because we feel guilty for what we've done. And we think it'll just be too painful to admit it and to confess it. We just can't go there. I mean, if this feels bad, how bad is that going to feel? So what do we do? We hide from them. We Run from them. So the husband stays work at late. Why does he stay late at work on this particular night? He stays late at work because he doesn't want to go home because he doesn't want to feel the pain of the guilt because he knows he sinned against his wife, for example. Or things happen within friendships and rather resolve things, friends just go their separate ways. What are they doing? They're running behind trees and hiding from each other because the guilt of the, the, the sin that they've committed against one another is too great. It's too painful. And so we run and hide. We even run and hide foolishly like Adam and Eve ran. Like childishly, which is what they do. It's like my boys. All of my boys, when they're little and you play hide and seek with them, how do little kids hide? Are they good at it? Are, are little, little kids good at hide and seek? No. They're terrible at it. And when we get older, what do we get better at? We get better at hiding. You're all, y'all are experts at hiding. Not just physically, but spiritually. We're so good at it. We'll get into that. But kids are not good at hiding. Right? Kids operate on the principle that if I can't see you, you can't see me. So how do, I've seen, I think, every one of my little kids when they were younger playing hide-and-seek by putting a bucket over their head. Really? Are you so unaware of the rest of your body? That's what Adam and Eve do. Oh, we'll just go behind this tree. He'll never find us there. And God's like, I, I made it. And I see it all, and I know where you are. Just like the, they're just like the kids who are, you know, laying down on the floor. I've seen just laying down on the floor with a bucket over their head. Shh, shh. And then they're whispering, right? You're standing over them. Does he see us? Do you think he sees us? Yes. This is what we do. We hide. My parents also know this. They, they know that there has been sin when they can't find their kids. Right? What is scarier as a parent? I mean, we've got, there's a gaggle of children. We've got five kids. And so, when we're at our home, um, sometimes we hear things that are alarming, a lot of times. But you know what's more alarming? 
when we don't hear anything. When we don't hear anything. Because we don't hear anything, that means they're hiding. And the reason they're hiding is because they've sinned. There's no different. And this is what Adam and Eve are, are doing here in the garden. And we all have this propensity to, to run and to hide. This is why people who, uh, or I shouldn't say people, this is why we, when we're in sin, in other words, when, we're, when we're disobeying God and we know it, you're either doing that now or, or you've done that, I know. Or we're disobeying God, we know we're disobeying God, we just want to disobey God. Whatever it is, we're counting on His mercy, we're counting on His grace, we just, we just don't feel like we can handle the circumstances that we're in, but for whatever reason, we're just willingly sinning and doing things we know that we shouldn't do. We're sinning against God. Well, here's one way that Christians hide from God. We don't read our Bible. John Wesley said the sin, either the sin will keep you from your Bible or your Bible will keep you from sin. And that's really true. Because what happens is when you read God's Word, right, when you read God's Word, this is what's happening. You're not just reading God's Word. When you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. When you read the Bible, you're communing with God and God is communing with you. When you're reading the Bible, God's gaze is upon you. And so if I'm sinning, I do not want to read God's Word. The reason I, my, my, my Bible collects dust when I am in sin, is because I'm hiding from God. It's silly, isn't it? But when I read His Word, what do I feel? I feel that guilt. I feel that guilt, that pain, because of my sin. So you should ask yourself if maybe you're not reading your Bible, maybe one of the reasons you're not... Though you have lots of reasons, I understand that, right? Because we're good at this. (laughs) You have lots of reasons. I know we're busy... And we just can't find a time of day that, you know, that works for us. And we're just distracted easily or we're not very good uh, readers or whatever. I mean, we've got lots of different, I understand, we've got lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons that we might not be reading God's word is because we're hiding. And when we read God's word, his gaze is upon us. And we don't like the guilt that we feel. And so we hide behind a tree. And the way we hide behind the tree is we put a Bible on a shelf and we make excuses for why we're not, why we're not reading it. So we hide from people. We hide from our family. Uh, we hide from church. We hide from church. That's another... You know, pastors will usually deduce that if someone just disappears and is not seen, the first question is, why are you at another church? You know, are you somewhere? Because that's fine. We're not just trying to, you know, keep people. Are you in another church? That's all right. You've gone somewhere. And find, but no, if you're not in a church and you haven't gone anywhere and you're just not in church. And again, you've got all these good reasons, right? But oftentimes, why is someone not in church? Well, because of the guilt. Because of the pain. We might want to say things and blame the church and blame the people like Adam and Eve. We'll try to blame God here in a minute. But the truth is that nothing has changed in God. And often nothing has changed in the people. The change has happened within us. But we run and we hide and we avoid because we don't want to feel the guilt of, of our sin. Guys, nothing has changed since Genesis chapter 3. So here they are. Adam explains himself. He was afraid and, and then he ran and then he hid. And then God responds back. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God knows the answers to these questions. These questions are designed by God to bring Adam to a point of confession. God is not trying to gain information. God is is omniscient. He, He knows the answers to these questions, but... He's asking these questions because he is, rather than driving him out of hiding, he is drawing him out of hiding. He's trying to bring him to a point of confession. Okay, so here we go. So he's hidden. Okay, and then we're going to see the other thing that we do when we're sin and when we're caught in sin. First, we try to hide and run from it and said, nope, nope, didn't do it. Got the wrong guy. Not me. But then when we're backs are against the wall, and there's just, there's just no wriggling out of anything. This is the next, the next thing that Adam does, and it's the next thing that, that we do. 
It might surprise you what he says. What does he say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He blames. He blames. He shifts the, he shifts the focus. Do you remember the last words that Adam spoke to his wife? These are the second recorded words that we have from Adam to uh, about his wife. The first ones were right after she was created. And he, he sings poetry on the spot. He carefully chooses his words. This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And in the Hebrew, it, it rhymes. It's poetic. It's beautiful. He's just in awe of this creature that God has, has given him. And he carefully chooses his words and he sings a song over her. And when we read that, we say, men, we should consider how we speak to our wives. I mean, women in generally, men, we should, just, we should speak to them differently. We should not treat them like one of the guys. We should not speak to them like one of the guys because they are not one of the guys. And we should speak to our wives differently. We should carefully choose our words. When we read that, we, that's an application we draw from it. And now look at the next recorded dialogue. What does he do? He throws his wife under the bus. He blames her. He blames her. Robert Rayburn said this about this passage. It is confirmed, alas, already in Genesis 3.12, where we have the next recorded speech of a husband to or about his wife. But now, sinner that he is, because that's what's changed, right? Something has changed in Adam. But now, sinner that he is, he is not loving her or celebrating her or acknowledging her as God's supreme gift to him. He is instead blaming her, accusing her, and hating her with his words. Which is what he's doing. He's hating her with his words. What is the implication of what Adam says? I would have been just fine. Right? I was good. If this was single, Adam... There wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't have even this discussion, Lord. The problem is not me. The problem is her. Let me rewind the video, God. You'll see who, who ate the fruit first. Right? Look at the security footage. You'll see that she, she ate it first. And I'm just, I'm just going along with this. I was just you know, trusting that she knew what was best here. But it's her fault. So he blames, his, he blames his wife. But is that all that he does? It's actually more significant than that, isn't it? I mean, listen to his, 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 his wording. What are the first words out of his mouth? Now, first, let's say that the first words out of his mouth should have been, I have sinned. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We'll see that pattern later. The pattern of a Christian. But these are the first words out of his mouth. The woman. That's the beginning of his sentence. The woman whom you gave to be with me. Is he actually blaming Eve ultimately? No, he's blaming Eve, but ultimately... This is, this is pretty big. This is like, Adam, brace yourself. Like, you, need, you have Kevlar on right now. Are you, are you in a secure position? Because he looks to God and says, the woman whom you gave me. So this woman is a problem, and let's just be clear where she came from, God. I mean, this is your... This is your providence. So again, maybe this is, she's like a beta version, and maybe you can give me an upgrade, because I would have been just fine on my own, but she is really screwing things up. She has messed things up. I would be just 
fine without her. But as you can see, God, there are clearly some defects. She is defective. And you gave her to me. What is he saying? What were you thinking, God? What were you thinking? Giving me this woman. And this is what happens. Any of you that maybe have counseling experience, this is what happens still today. When a married couple, for example, comes into an office for counseling and it's gone, it's gone bad. And here they are as a husband and wife, but we're not sure how much longer they're going to be husband and wife. I mean, there's a lot that's happened between them. Now, there's something that, that, you, that you want and you hope for, and, and it, is, it is confession. And it's responsibility. And instead, what typically happens is this. Blame. And when it's the husband, it's usually, it's the woman God gave me. And when it's the wife, it's the husband that God gave me. That's pointing fingers. It's blaming, failing to take responsibility. Interestingly enough, though, God does not hammer Adam yet. He takes his word for it. And and what does he do now? He turns to the woman. He turns to the woman and he, he asks her, what is this that you have done? Well, maybe she'll respond better. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. This is the other excuse that we use. That's a pretty good one. The devil's pretty bad. But this is her response. No responsibility. No one, no one is taking responsibility yet, right? We have not heard the words, I have sinned, I am sinful, forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. Man, what have you done? She made me do it. Woman, what have you done? The devil made me do it. I was tempted. If I wasn't tempted, we wouldn't be in this place. What are they saying? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. The devil made me me do it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So let's look and and apply this. Let's just look closer at at what what Adam and Eve did and, and what God did here. Because again, these are relational patterns. This is still what happens today, right? First with the man and the woman. We we hide. We hide. I'm not guilty. It's hiding. I'm not guilty. Uh, I'm a good person. And we run from the law. I mean, what's the first tactic when a criminal is being pursued? Typically, he, he doesn't come clean. Typically, he runs and he, and he hides. Because I'm not guilty. And then once it's clear that he has done something wrong, then he makes his defense. Which is blaming and making excuses. And we see this, you can pick up the newspaper today and see this playing out. But the same is true for us in our sin. We hide, we say I'm not guilty, we run from the law. I think probably one of the biggest ways that we hide as human beings before a holy God, as sinful human beings, is we, we convince ourselves that we are uh, these good people. This doesn't apply to me. These words, they don't, they don't apply to me. This is for bad people. This is the bad news for some people who are really sinful and who are really this, this, this bad off and, and who maybe can relate to Adam, but we try to convince ourselves that this is not who we are, that, that Jesus is for uh, bad people. But I'm a good person. Religion is not for, for good people. Uh, it's a crutch. Right, for people who feel like they need something else, who aren't, who aren't self-sufficient, who aren't thinking positively uh, enough, who have some, some uh, uh, defectiveness in them. But that's not me. 
I'm a good person. And that's good and well for you. And if you think you need salvation, and if you think you need that form of spirituality, and if you think that you need help, and if you think that you can't live this life on your own, and you need some kind of a, of a crutch, then that's fine, and that's good for you. But I'm a, I'm a good person. Uh, most of us, Most of us believe that about ourselves. Whether we say it or not. Most of us, and certainly our, our, our friends, right, and, and our world, believes that, that I'm, a, I'm a good person. This is a sort of hiding out in the open. It's not running and, and hiding behind a tree. It's just this denying that there's, there's anything guilty in me. I'm not bad. I'm not bad. And we can sit and listen to sermons and we can sit and listen to the gospel and we can hear Christians talk and it just goes right over our heads because we think it doesn't apply to us because I'm a good person. So we need to understand this. I am not a good person. I am a bad person. You need to understand the same thing. I, as your, those of you who remember, as your pastor, a pastor, I am not, I am not a good person. I'm a bad person. That is the bad news. And the truth is, is that all of you are also bad. You're not good. Here's how the Bible breaks it down. I'll just give you three texts. Proverbs 4.23 Jeremiah 17:9, Mark 7:21 through 23. Just a helpful chain of passages, but the whole Bible speaks to this. First of all, the scripture teaches us that there is a center of your being. There is a core of who you are, and the Bible calls that your heart. Okay, and from this come your passions, and from this come your desires, and, and from this ultimately come your decisions, and the way that you live your life. In other words, everything, everything that is you, and everything that is your life, it starts at a center, and most people believe that today. Some would even say it's your heart, and it, or it's your soul, or it's the, you know, the, the central part of your, your being. Whatever word you want to use. The Bible says that it's your heart. And Proverbs 4.23 says that the heart is the wellspring of your life. In other words, it's the spring and everything in your life comes out of, of your heart. So now we ask God... Okay, well, what do you say about that wellspring? What does the Bible say about the center? Because many people today might accept that, yeah, there is uh, my heart. And that is really, when it boils down to it, that is who I am. But here's where people depart from God's truth and, and believe worldly truth. And that is, and my heart is good. We even say things like, they have such a good heart. You can say that. I know what you mean by that. And, and I've said that about people. But if we're strictly speaking, according to the Bible, you cannot say that about anybody but Jesus. No one has a good heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful and it is desperately sick. So this is, this is Scripture now saying... You know, sounding off alarms for human beings saying the core of who you are is corrupt. Take it or leave it. Believe it. Not believe it. We're saying we believe it. Because I don't want to listen to just what popular opinion of men have come up with. I want to hear from God. And I want to know what God says. And I believe that this is what He says. So that core of who we are, it is deceitful. It is desperately sick. And so then the Bible says that the wrong things that we do or the evil things that we do, the immorality, theft, murder, lies, white lies, whatever it is, every degree of wrong that we do, Mark seven twenty one says, comes from within a man. And makes him unclean. Comes from his heart. 
So we tend to think that the good things that we do in life are a reflection of who we really are. And the bad things we do are sort of just a peripheral problem. And the Bible says the exact opposite. That the bad things that you do are actually a reflection of who you are. And the good things that you do are by God's grace. It's very different. And all this is truth to make us very desperate so that we're crying out to God and calling out to God and receptive of the good news that he gives us. There are no good people in the world today. Now, on a horizontal, let me make a distinction. Let's talk about good horizontally and good vertically. So if you, if you want to say, okay, there are good people in the world today on a sort of horizontal plane. In other words... Obviously, and yes, and amen, are people doing things on a, on a horizontal plane that are good and helpful toward other people? Yes. And Oprah is good. There. Got me to say it. On a horizontal plane. People, whether they know God or not, whether they know Jesus or not, whether they're Christian or not, that's not what I'm saying. People are able to do good things in that sense that are helpful and are benefiting other people. We would call that a sort of civic virtue. And Jonathan Edwards would say that though typically that is motivated by what's called enlightened self-interest. In other words, you're doing good things for other people, even Oprah, but when you get down to the deepest motive, still ugly. It's still I want recognition. It's still I won't be happy with myself if I don't do this. It's still me focused. And on top of that, even those good things that we do do, the Bible says, are because God is enabling us to do them and God is restraining us from being as bad as we could be. Like the story we'll read in Genesis 20 where Abraham hands his wife over to Abimelech and Abimelech thankfully does not sin against God or Abraham and sleep with this beautiful woman. And then God tells Abimelech that you did not because I did not let you sin against me. So we're bad. But you're not as bad as you could be. I'm not as bad as I could be. But the reason is not because there's something good in me. The reason is because God restrains us. It's his common grace given to all, showered on all, because we have a good, loving, and caring God. But if left to ourselves, this spins way out of control. And those monsters we have in the world today are those whom God has pulled way back on. That's where we see human potential. We say things like, let's live up to our human potential. God forbid. God forbid we actualize our potential as human beings. But on a vertical plane, good is very different. And there is no one good in this room. On a vertical plane, in terms of doing things that are pleasing and honoring to God, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to do those good things. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Romans 14.23 says the same. Matthew 7 says that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. And it says we're all diseased trees. We don't grow good fruit apart from God. And so I cannot do what is truly good, that is pleasing and honoring to God apart from Him. Because you see, even when a philanthropist does great and wonderful things, even things that we would say and love and advocate for, great and wonderful things, when they do those things and yet in the end don't give praise and glory to God, they actually rob God of glory due His name, and that is offensive to God. So it's good, but it's not good. It's not pleasing to God. That's what we're saying when we say that there is nothing good in us. We cannot be good without Him. We are enslaved to sin. As Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave 
to sin. And so we hide under this, I'm a good person. And then when we're caught and we can't get around it, and we know we've done things we should not do, we justify our actions, we make a weak defense, we blame others, we shift fault. And really what ends up happening is every attempt to excuse ourselves is an attempt to blame God. If we don't take responsibility for our sin and say the problem is in here and the problem is out there, understand that what you're ultimately doing is always blaming God. Right? The woman that you gave me. Right? The devil that you allowed in the garden. The circumstances that your providence has brought about. There's always at the end of that, when we blame, there is an accusing God. So really, as Martin Luther said, what Adam is saying here is, Lord, you have sinned. That's what blaming is. Someone else did it. It's not my fault. I should not be held accountable. So this is what we do. We sin, we hide, we blame, and this is the bad news. This is the problem And all the good deeds and all the positivity and all the change in circumstances in the world will not make us right with God and therefore will bring no peace and no happiness into our lives. That's the bad news. And if we're left there, that's a desperate place to be. But keep reading. There's good news. We're going to see the good news as we continue to study Genesis, but we see it already in the way God mercifully and patiently pursues Adam and Eve here in the garden. He does not make an end of them. He mercifully and patiently patiently pursues them. Griffith Thomas has forcibly summed up the significance of this question in the following words. God's question to Adam still sounds in the ear of every sinner. Where art thou? It is the call of divine justice which cannot overlook sin. It is the call of divine sorrow which grieves over the sinner. It is the call of divine love which offers redemption from sin. To each and to every one of us, the call is reiterated, where art thou? We'll see. God will seek Abraham. God will seek Jacob. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save The lost. God is now seeking every one of you through the preaching of His Word. It's just like, it is just like what God did in the garden. Because we sit here as Adam and Eve's. We sit here as sinful human beings who have committed treachery against the perfect God and rebelled from Him and gone our own way, and if left to ourselves, will one day bear righteously His judgment. And yet, what does God do? Does He leave us? Or does He come after us? He pursues them. He comes down into the garden and is kind and is patient and is merciful. And he calls out to them. He says, where are you? What have you done? You understand that God does that in many ways today. But one way that we all have it in common is that we're experiencing right now through His Word being preached. 
Because through his word being preached, what God is saying to you and to me, even as I speak and to you as you sit, God is saying, where are you? He's giving you opportunity. He's saying, what have you done? And you and all, we we all sit here today and God has not made an end of us. What has he done? He has mercifully prolonged our sinful lives. And he's given us opportunity again. Some of you, over and over and over again, just mercy and grace. You've had many conversations with God in the garden following your sin. And he's coming. And he's pursuing us. And calling out to us. And what is he calling out to us with? He's calling out to us with good news. Good news. God does not come into the garden and believe me, he could have. As we understand the character of God, he does not come into the garden and say, game over. Done. He does not do this. He comes and brings good news. What is good news? Good news is the gospel. It literally means good news. This is why we preach good news. This is why how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's why the gospel is good news. That while this truth in Genesis 3, this is your history, and this is an explanation of why you do the things you do, and who you are by nature, is all explained right here. And that is bad news. But the good news is that God comes calling to us in great patience and says, there is a way back to me. And the way back to God is this, that He has sent His Son, Jesus. But you know what Jesus did when He lived for those 33 years on this earth? He came into the garden. He came into the garden where God's rules still were. And you know what Jesus did not do for 33 years? He did not eat the fruit. Therefore, he did not deserve judgment. He did not deserve wrath. He did not deserve to die. And yet we read at the end of the story, Jesus dies. And he dies a death that is more horrible and painful spiritually, emotionally, and physically than all the painful deaths in all eternity put together. And yet he did not sin. And then the Bible tells us why. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. So you and me and Adam and Eve, we failed. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus came and he succeeded. And then Jesus says, I'll take their punishment. I'll pay their debt. I'll pay the price. I'll die in their place. That's the gospel. And then the promise of that gospel is to all those who believe this good news, to all those who now turn from sin and turn to God, the promise is eternal life. The promise is what? The promise is Genesis 1 and 2. The promise is God brings us back to that perfect harmony and fellowship and communion with Him. And what is God doing? And what will God do? He is rebuilding that garden. And where will we all be, those who have repented and turned to Jesus? We will be in the new heavens and the new earth, or the new garden. Better than the first. 
perfect communion with God, our Father. And we see the beginning of that right here in Genesis 3. And how God comes looking for his people and does not let them go. And we celebrate this every week through communion, don't we? I'm going to pray and then together as a family we'll have bread and juice that is up here for you. Symbol of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus so that we remember together the way that God has made a way for us back to him. And it is through the death of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that together. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word that you have for us today. Thank you for the discouragement of the truth of our sinfulness, but God, the infinite encouragement of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that there is a way for us to to be saved, that there is a way for us to have joy that isn't rooted in ourselves, God, because many of us know, we know by your word and we know by experience that there is nothing good in us, that if left to ourselves, it will not go well, that we have gone astray, that we are not in need of help, we're in need of rescue. And so we find great comfort and infinite hope in the gospel, the good news that you have brought us back to you. God, help us as your people to live faithfully, to live in a way that pleases you, that brings you glory and honor. We pray this in the great and powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.